In him also we have obtained an inheritance, being predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, that we who were first trusted in Christ should be to the praise of his glory. In him also you trusted after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also, having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of his glory. Would you pray with me? Father, we, we ask just quietness of heart, quiet my heart, quiet my soul. May what I have to say be your words, not mine. May we rejoice in the truth that you have to share with us this morning. May we use that truth to share with others. Thank you, Father, for all that you've done for us in Jesus. We ask your blessing in his name, we pray, amen. I want to ask a question this morning. Do any of you, now you don't need to shout it out loud, keep it to yourself, do any of you have a prized possession? Something that you value. Perhaps um, it's an award you received in high school or college. Perhaps, uh, I know many of you are hunters, perhaps it's a trophy animal that you were able to get um, in, uh, in a particular hunting spot. Perhaps it's mounted uh, in your home. Or maybe it's just, it just maybe it's a small thing. Something you found uh, while you were, as a kid, going through the woods, and you found this thing, and it's, it's valuable to you. Well, I have prized possessions, and, and we all do, and one of my prized possessions, and it's back in my office, I meant to bring it up, and it's not up here, uh, is something that uh, I received a few years ago. And now, now truth be told, I'm, I'm not good at displaying them, and so I rely heavily on my wife for that. But if you walk into my office uh, at home, you will find a, a prized possession that I have. Um, and I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a big Twins fan. Um, I'm so glad they're back in, in the playoffs now, and uh, we'll be doing that starting next week. But for years, growing up as a kid, uh, I used to uh, listen to the radio uh, when I listened to Twins game. We had TV, but we really relied on the radio for listening to games. And if you're familiar with uh, late 80s to, through the 90s into the 2000s, the voice of the Minnesota Twins was John Gordon. And I always looked forward to hearing John Gordon's voice on the radio when he would say, Twins baseball is live on the air from the Metrodome in the Twin Cities. And, and you just knew that he was able to describe the game in such a way that you just, just held your attention. That was John Gordon. Well, John Gordon retired in 2011. That was his last season, and I had moved back from Pennsylvania at that time, and I thought, you know what? I'm going to write him a letter just saying thank you for your many years. You, 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 you helped me in my childhood just identify with my favorite team, and I really enjoyed you on the radio and said a few more things. I have a, the letter still in the hard, uh, a hard copy in my, in my computer. So I sent the letter off. I sent, I think, I sent it care of uh, WCCO and the cities. And uh, 
you know, just wanted him to receive it and letting him know that one of his fans thanked him for all his work and, and congratulating him on his retirement. Well, I didn't expect to get anything back. And, and, and truth be told, uh, one day when a postcard arrived in the mail, I didn't think anything of it. But when I got that postcard, I turned it around, and here it was, was a personal note from John Gordon, thanking me for the letter that I had written and, and noting that it was one of his favorites. And it was going into his file of favorite fan letters that he had. And he continued just on just a little bit, just is touching on some things that I had mentioned and how he really enjoyed me writing to him and thanking him for all his work as the broadcast, radio broadcast voice of the Minnesota Twins. And so if you walk in my home office, you'll see that little postcard on display. It's one of my prized possessions. Which, by the way, just a side note, has nothing to do with what we're talking about. Uh, but John Gordon is a believer, and he testifies strongly of Jesus Christ. Well, just like you and I have possessions that we praise through our efforts to decorate and draw attention to them, I, I would, I'm sure that as, if we were to come into your home, we would find the same. But just like we make those efforts to decorate and draw attention to those prized possessions, you and I must make the same effort, if not more, to praise God to whom we belong. That's my challenge for you this morning. We are to praise the God to whom we belong. We've, we've been talking about this so much in the past few weeks. And as Paul is ending this just great, one long sentence of praise to God, he, he highlights a few more things. And it's another opportunity to, for us to praise God. And, and I want us to ask the question, well, what do we praise God for? What do we praise God for? What are these last few verses going to show us about what we are to praise God for? I'd like to submit to you two truths that are here that will help us praise the God to whom we belong. The first one is that we are acquired by God. We are acquired by God, verses 11 and 12. In him also we have obtained an inheritance, being predestined according to the purpose of him, who works all things according to the counsel of his will, that we who first trusted in Christ should be to the praise of his glory. We are acquired by God. And again, this, this, this goes back, harkens back to uh, the previous section we talked about last, uh, or actually two weeks ago, jumping all the way back into verse 5, the adoption that we discussed, God taking us and adopting us into his family. So we're acquired by God. And I want us to notice a few things that Paul lays out for us about this truth. Number one is, it, is that Christ makes this possible. Verse 11, in him. We've seen this phrase over and over again. In him. Paul uses this little prepositional phrase to draw our attention to this truth and now to discuss a different part of the amazing work of grace through Christ. In him. Christ makes this acquiring, this, this adoption, this acceptance possible. I hope you've seen that through, through these past few weeks of, of looking at how this uh, truth, these truths are all wrapped up in Jesus. It's all about him. Christ makes our, our inclusion, Christ makes our acceptance possible. Secondly, I want you to notice this, this, this truth itself. The believer becomes possessed by God. Notice in 
uh, verse, uh, as he continues on there in verse 11, in him also we have obtained an inheritance. Now, this is unique in that uh, this is the only time this word is used in the original language. And uh, it's one of Paul, Paul loves to invent words. We'll see another one of that, those words just in the, in the next verse or two. But Paul loves to invent words. And so, we're, so when you're studying this word, you have to go back to some of the, the ancient literature to figure out, okay, what does this word mean? We have obtained an inheritance. I would submit to you there's a couple things about this word that is unique. And number one, it shows how unique the truth is that Paul's talking about. If this is the only time this word is used in the New Testament, in the original language, it shows that this is pretty important. This is not something to be disregarded or discarded as something that is trivial. Uh, it is important. It's something we are to consider. So, so we have to go back to the classical literature. We have to look at, okay, what did this mean back even before the New Testament was written? Well, back then, it had a couple usages, a couple meanings. It meant to appoint by lot, to cast lots, or to obtain by lot. Another, another uh, definition is to assign a point or a portion. Uh, it's used three times in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, and the real clear one is in 1 Samuel 14, 41. And th- the story there is Saul and Jonathan are being, uh, are, Saul's trying to figure out what's going on, so he tells the army that he is leading, okay, cast lots, figure out who the troublemaker is. And when you get down to verse 41, the lot or the decision is chosen, is cast, and Jonathan is discovered to be the one who's is caused the ruckus that they are facing. And to be sure, there's different struggles to identify what this word really means. I looked at the different commentators and, you know, this, this person has this opinion, this person has this opinion. But I think it's best to see this term, we have obtained an inheritance, as being descriptive, showing that God has chosen believers to possess the benefits that he has previously discussed, and he has possessed them because of what he has done. So it's the, it's the benefits that we just talked about, the adoption, verse 5, uh, redemption in verse 7, all those benefits that Paul has discussed and talked about that God has given to us, that's our inheritance. But it's also a double-edged sword in that our, is, our inheritance also includes God. God, I, I put it this way, God gets us. So, so there's, there is this inheritance where we receive things, we receive Truths, and again, the redemption, the adoption, but there's also a part, a major part of the inheritance that we have in Christ is that we get God in the process. And the best way that I can illustrate it, and I think this is, you know, pretty, it's, it's weak at times, but I think it's there. Um, I don't know if you've ever inherited something from perhaps a relative or a friend, but when you get that particular item, whether it be a piece of furniture. I know my mom has uh, inherited uh, several things from her grandparents and great-grandparents, and they are on display in her house. But when you get that item, uh, the item becomes yours, doesn't it? Uh, you, you, don't, you don't give it back to the family, the person you got it from, either through the will or through uh, different means. They have given that item to you. But it is yours now, and you, you have the opportunity to display it. But something happens to that item once it becomes yours, it still retains its identity with a previous owner, doesn't it? 
Because if you walk into that person's house, and again, using my mother as an illustration, if you walk into her house, you'll see different items spread throughout. And some of those items are, again, from her grandparents. And, and she will say, oh, oh, that belonged to my grandpa Parker. Or that belonged to your great-grandpa Fish. So yes, they're hers, but they're still known by the previous owner's identity. And that is, in, in some small sense, what you and I get when we inherit God. We get all the, the goods, the stuff that become ours, the, the redemption, those blessed benefits, but God also gets us. We, he inherits us by his choice, and we are now his. Notice also that this act of possession was commanded in eternal, eternity past being predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his word. There it is, the word predestination. We've seen it before. But predestination here refers to the, the, the construction of the word, points that the believers are the recipients of the action and God is the subject. It connects all the way back into verse 5, having predestined us to adoption. So the two verses connect in that way using the same word, to point out that we are the benefit of this inheritance. God is the one who has acted on that. And isn't it a blessing to know that God determined to possess us, to, to gain us even before it was possible? God in eternity past not only chose you and me, but made out the plan, made out the actions he would take in order to have us be his, to possess us. You and I do not serve a God who just, who just figures out things haphazardly, who goes and just kind of wings it. You and I have a God who thinks things out, who acts on what he has planned before. Notice also that this act of possession is divinely purposeful, being carried out by an active God according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. The word purpose here has the idea of to mean that which is planned in advance. And it reflects a divine objective. It, Paul uses this word in Romans 8, 28, where he says, and we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. It is God's purpose that he is fulfilling, not ours, not what we want, not what we desire. And again, we would, we would uh, be foolish to think that we could figure this out. And so God figures it out for us. He plans it. He puts it, puts it into, into practice, into, into place, so that we are the benefits of it. We get God. And notice what God is doing according to the purpose of him who works all things that word works all things, put, has a idea to put capabilities and into action. This shows that God is continually working towards his purpose. He's not, again, just not sitting back and, and thinking about things, how he's going to do things, and worrying, okay, how am I going to do this, how am I going to do that? No, he's actively working to bring about his purposes. Paul will use this word three other times in the New Testament, in, in here in the book of Ephesians, 
and it reflects the, the predominant usage in the New Testament, uh, refers to the working of the will of God in the life of the believer. God is actively at work so that he is we're bringing about his purpose, not just for you and I, but notice for all things. Again, this points back to verse 10, that all things means everything immaterial and material are under God's providential care. God is working in every small detail. And let me stop and say this, brothers and sisters, are you glad that God works in every small detail? That God does not leave just the tiniest thing behind? That regardless of what you and I face, regardless of what challenges we go through, God has the small details taken care of. And I, I am tempted, and, and I have done this time and time again, where I have been prone to worry about this detail or that detail, but when I look at this verse, I am convicted that God, if God has everything worked out, even to the smallest minute detail, why am I worrying about something that he's already taken care of? And do we need, as, as, as believers, living that out? And again, I'm saying this to myself. Living out, if, if I believe in a God who's worked out the very small details, that shouldn't lead me to worry about them. As much as I want to grip and control that and make sure that that is something that I am in control of, I have to realize, no, God, you have control of that. I'll leave it alone. God is the one who's working all things according to the purpose of his will. So you can trust him. You can trust him for that, that issue in your life, perhaps relational issue that you have that you just don't know how that's going to work out. You can trust him for perhaps the, the job issue that you have, that you just, you're not really liking your job and your boss is a horrible person and it just, you, don't, you don't know how you're going to survive. You can trust God who is working in your life all things. Fifthly, under this point of, of, being, uh, of being acquired by God, God's the possession of a believer is a part of God's overall strategy. God's overall strategy. Notice he uses, according to the counsel of his will. The word counsel here means to decide. What, what one decides is a plan of action. You know, it's a, we, we read in our history books how uh, generals and kings... Uh, called councils of war. And what were the purpose of those? Those purposes were to decide, okay, what are we going to do? How are we going to go about the battle plan? And, and how are we going to gain victory in the situation that we're facing? Well, that's the same idea here. God is gathering his, not necessarily war council, but just God is taking counsel. God is, is considering, what am I going to do? And here the, the description is that God is carrying out a, an intellectual deliberation for the purpose of carrying out a plan. God in eternity past gathered himself together, himself and himself only, and decided what to do. And the word here, as one commentator points it, shows that what God decided was not based upon a whim, but on careful thought and interaction. Do you think you really have a God who plans things out and he's careful about it? He doesn't just, you know, okay, I'm going to put this together, I'm going to put this together, and we'll make it work. No, no, he fits each piece into place so that what comes out is a perfect plan. 
That is the God who possesses you. That is part of his overall strategy, his overall redemptive plan. And notice again, what we've seen before, it's his will that is accomplished, not the will of man. And I think Paul has used this verse, continued this phrase, his will, to point our attention that this is what God wants to accomplish. Not you, Ephesus church, not me, Paul, but you, O oh God, this is what you want to accomplish. I think it is necessary for us to realize that what God has done is for his plans and his glory, not ours. We as a church here this morning, we are gathered to worship God and our lives are to reflect his plan, not ours. Many people come in churches today and they are looking for what they can get out of the church. What benefit can the church give me? But this scripture says that God is working all things for his purposes, his will, according to his plan for his glory. So why am I coming to church seeking for my benefit and my glory? I'm not going to get it anyway. That is not the point. And so when I come to, to, to be active in corporate worship and then as, as I go out and in the community, my life should reflect the fact that I'm living for him. It's his will that is being accomplished and not mine. For the believer, this, this redemptive plan encapsulates our possession by God. And then finally, being possessed by God has a goal to bring glory to him. We've seen it before. To the praise of his glory. That we who first trusted in Christ should be to the praise of his glory to the praise of his glory, glory of his grace, verse 6. To the praise of his glory, the end of verse 14. We've seen it again. Everything that God is doing has this ultimate goal of praising himself, praising his glory, glorifying himself. This is the purpose. This is all what God is doing. And, no, and notice that as this is the goal for, for God to bring praise to himself, we get to be a part of that. That is our specific task, that we who first trusted Christ should be to the praise of his glory. Now some, the, the word there, we who first trusted in Christ, I see it to be prior and hoping. And, and there's, there's some debate, again, what does this word mean? It's one of those words that Paul uses only once. It's only once used in the New Testament. And without getting too much into detail, I believe the word highlights not the position of the people who first trusted in Christ, but refers to the apostle and his fellow believers. It's not talking universally about believers. It's talking about, as Paul is writing to the Ephesians, he is talking about their position in Christ, how they were one of the first to believe and, and how they are the ones who are to praise God, that we who are the first were to hope in Christ. Then the hope here refers to the believers' benefits and God's redemptive plan and that hope is furthered along with a promise of inheritance. So there's a hope now that they are, they, they are, Paul is encouraging the Ephesians to rejoice in. The hope is the redemption, the adoption, all the truths that he's talked about. But there's also a future hope that Paul wants them to rejoice in, to praise God for. The promise of inheritance is still yet to come. And notice who this hope is in. That we who first trusted in Christ. Again, the phrase here in Christ points 
to the fact that there is no other substitute allowed in the hope. This is, this, again, the exclusivity of the gospel. In Christ, everything is found, and no one else can take his place. No one else can act like him. So I have a question for us. Do you and I live like we belong to God? As we, as we think about all of this, we're being possessed by God. We're being possessed for a purpose. It's according to his plan. Are we living that out in our daily lives as, as, as we, we interact in our relationships in the workplace, as we go about in our community? Do we act like we belong to God? Do we act like we have an inheritance that we are predestined according to the purpose of him? Or are we acting like the world? Just trying to skate by. And that, there, there are many believers, there are many Christians today who are, are living like they don't belong to God. They're living like, you know, that this earth is all that they have. And so they have to work to keep it. They have to work to maintain what they have. And, and it's got to be them, it's got to be their plan, their purposes, and I, I, we, we just have to figure this out. But when you look at the scripture, you look at Ephesians, you see God has it already figured out. So I don't have to be worried about my plans, my agenda, my goals. Why? Because I'm living for him. And do I live that way before others? Or do I live like I belong to myself? How are you living like you belong to God? May we do that in each one of our lives. So not only are we acquired by God, and we are to praise the God to whom we belong, we are acquired by him, but secondly and finally, we carry his mark of ownership. Verses 13 through 14. In him also you trusted, after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also having believed you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of of his glory. See this truth with me this morning. This is, this is incredible. I love this. As I take a drink of water. Uh, we carry his mark of ownership. Notice here <clears throat> that this ownership is preceded by faith in God. Again, in him, in Christ, this happens. This occurs. You also trusted after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also having believed. Faith precedes ownership. The, 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 the idea of the word hearing or listening after you heard indicates that's an action in the past. The Ephesians at one point in time heard of Christ, heard, heard the gospel message. And the gospel message is the word of truth. The truth was in the content of what they heard, that, that Jesus had died for them and that he rose again, that this was all fulfilled by prophecy. And that they believed the gospel of your salvation. They believed. Having believed, the faith there comes into play. They, they were saved. The salvation is the rescue from sin provided for by the death of Christ on the cross. What they heard, the truth of the gospel of salvation, that they could be saved, and they believed it. They had faith. They trusted in, in God and what he was doing 
And so they, 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 they took that opportunity. When they heard, they believed. It's Romans 10, 17. So then faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. When one hears the gospel, there is inherent call to believe or not to believe. And that's a challenge for you and I, I hope, as we think about testifying of our faith, we need to speak it. A lot of people say, and this is a challenge to me, I be, I, again, I'm an introvert, I, I, it's a struggle at times for me to talk to people, but when I look at the scripture here, I see that, that the reality is that I need to be speaking God's truth to people, not just living it out. Some people will default to the, well, people can see my faith by my life, and that's true. That's true. But how shall they hear? Right? How, how are they going to hear? Yes, people are going to see truth through your life, but more importantly, you need to hear it. That's what the Ephesians said. They heard the gospel. They heard the gospel of salvation. That they could be saved. That Christ had died for the sins of the cross, and the result, they turned to him. Now, this does not mean that everybody turned to Christ. There will be those who reject. And that is to be expected in our lives. But we need to be focused on the fact that we need to, to, to proclaim his truth because hearing and believing go together. So are you and I in our lives as we, as we have opportunity? And again, those opportunities look different. It may be just passing out a track to someone or, or just talking with someone for a couple minutes. But are we making those efforts to proclaim God through our words? Invite people to accept or to reject him. So ownership by God is also proved by the presence of the Holy Spirit. Look, look at this, this truth. This is great. And whom having also having believed, you were sealed with the spirit of promise. This word sealed means to mark with a seal as means of ident- identification. If you go into... Uh, my, my library at home, you will, not all of them, but some of the books that you open up, in, in the first page, there's a little stamp there that says, this is the property of David Fish. Several years ago, I bought a, online just a rubber stamp with my name in it so I can mark all my books so people can steal them, so I can make sure those are mine, because I've had that happen. But, but, but I bought that rubber, rubber uh, stamp that you dip in the ink, right, and you mark it, and the purpose for me buying it was to, okay, this, this book belongs to me, to claim it, to own it. Well, that's the idea here. Paul uses this word to refer to our identification as belonging to God. And in the, all of his writings, he uses this word four times. He uses it to show that this happens at salvation and that this is for all believers. You were sealed. The word you is Plural. And the seal is a stamp of God's ownership on the life of the believer. God possesses, God owns the life of a believer. And it follows the logic of adoption and redemption in verses 5 and 7. This is just natural. When, when God saved you and I, he sealed us. He put his mark of ownership on us. And I know that's not a, 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 a popular term today. People don't like to be marked or owned. But in this case, it's a good thing. 
You carry, you carry as a, if there's been a time in your life where you, you confessed you were a sinner, you acknowledged there was no way of getting to God apart from Christ, you accept his free gift of salvation, God placed his mark on you. You belong to him because of what Christ did for you. So brothers and sisters, be, be, be in awe of the fact that God owns you. God has sealed you. God, God is, possesses you to the utmost. You belong to him. And while some may say you, you can lose that, I think this verse clearly points out that you can never lose your salvation. You are continually God's. God never loses you. And notice also that this is the Holy Spirit of promise. So the, the, the phrase the Holy Spirit refers to that, that brings the, the third member of the Trinity into this, that the Holy Spirit is, is involved in salvation. Father is involved in salvation and Christ is involved in salvation. The three in one are all involved. And this is something that was promised. Something that was given to, to, to uh, the believers and, 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 and promised in God's word. It means to carry out something with an implicit obligation. This is the promise of the Holy Spirit given by Christ to believers. You can look at later on in your study, perhaps. Luke 24, 49, John 14, 16 to 17, and John 15, 26 point to the promise of the, belief, of, of the Holy Spirit that Christ gave to his disciples so that they would never be alone, so they would never experience any fear of being disowned by God, the presence of the Spirit, the Spirit in you means that God is with you and God owns you. And lastly, under this point, the Holy Spirit is the guarantee of the believer's future with God, who is the guarantee of our inheritance of the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of his glory. The word guarantee, we can, we can translate it as a down payment it's a payment of a purchase price in advance. We, we just bought a house uh, about a month and a half ago. And, and one of the things we had to do was put out a down payment. And you've, you have bought a house, you know this, right? One of the requirements, you put a down payment on the house. And for us, God was able to provide funds for us to do that. And the point is so that when you buy the particular property, a particular house, the down payment assures that you will pay the rest of the price. You will pay the rest of what is required of you. We'll hear the presence of the Holy Spirit in your life and my life is the guarantee that God will give us all that he has promised. And so you and I can never doubt that God won't fulfill his promises because the Spirit lives in us. It highlights the surety of our salvation, the confidence of our salvation, that God himself gives himself as a pledge to what he has promised in salvation. And that will certainly occur. Do you see that you can trust God? That, that the very presence of his spirit points you that he will fulfill his promises? And so when you're, 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 you're challenged to doubt God and just wonder, well, man, I just, I just don't know. Am I saved? Am I not saved? What's going to happen? The very fact that the Spirit lives in you by faith in Christ that you have shows you that God will fulfill his promises. That this is the first installment, if you will. That there's something still better coming. 
It's also the inheritance, who is the guarantee of our inheritance. Again, the, the inheritance shows here, that the, the, the phrase shows that the Holy Spirit is only part of the inheritance. It's only part of what is to come. There's much more. There's, a, there's an eternal redemption that you and I have that is still to come. Brothers and sisters, there's much more to come. Your best life isn't now. Amen? It's to come. There is so much more to come. And the Spirit is just a small taste of that. Until the redemption of the purchased possession. The, the, the phrase here is that which is acquired. And so there are a lot of, again, a lot of discussions as to what this means, but let me boil it down for you, taking everything into context, into account. This phrase, the redemption of the purchased possession, would best be seen as the future redemption of those who have been possessed by God, you and me. There is a, a time coming where God will forever possess us. Yes, he possesses us now, but there's still a day coming where that possession will be made final. That possession will be made eternal, and the Spirit looks to that. That future day when everything will be completed. And what is this for? What is everything that God has worked for? What has everything that we've been talking about the past three weeks, what is that all leading up to? It's leading up to the praise of his glory at the end of verse 14. Paul writes and he says to the Ephesians, he says to us, all that you have, have in Christ, all that God has done for you, all that he has worked out in you, all that he has predestined you for, all that he has planned in the eternity past, that is for his glory. That is not for our basking in, taking advantage of. It is for his glory. Paul says to the praise of his glory. And that should be our attitude. That as we go out in our lives, in our relationships, at our jobs, that everything we do should be to the praise of his glory. Illustration of this might be that I, when I, when I, when I prepare messages, I, I work with the original languages because that's the way I was trained and, and I really enjoy that. But there have been several times the past few weeks where uh, I have worked with, gone through all the, the steps in my head of translating and, and going through and diagramming and everything. So I sent a message to two people who were very much and still are an influence in my life in this area. The first one was, is Paul Gibbs. He's currently down in Arizona area, but he's the one who taught me Greek. Second message was to, same, same content, second message was to my, my Greek exegesis professor, a man who, who I highly regard, who is my mentor, Al Hus. And, and basically in that message, I said, thank you so much for teaching me the language, for helping me see what God's word really says so I can communicate it to his people. And one of the replies I got from Al was to the praise of his glory. Everything that Al poured into me in seminary was for God's glory. And that is the same way it should be for you and I. 
as we live our lives reflecting on this truth that you and I belong to God, that we are adopted, that we are redeemed, everything that we should be talking about and doing should be reflective and praise to him. Now, it doesn't mean that you walk into the bank on a, or walk into the tower window or a drive-through and say, praise Jesus, it's a great day. Now, you could do that. That's fine. But maybe as you interact with people, and people say, you know, there's something different about you. Yeah, this is, God's great. God's good. Praise him. Don't be fake. But at the same time, reflect, revel in what God has done for you and praise him for it, whether it be privately to yourself or publicly to others. Point of application I would like to ask us this morning. Do you and I actively remember that God owns us? And a point to the word actively, because we have a tendency to forget. We have a tendency to, to forget what God has done for us. So you and I consciously in our mind remember, okay, God owns me. That should change the way I live. That should change the way I say things. That should change how I view what God is doing. It's all to the praise of his glory. God owns me. So let me live that out for others to see. We bestow honor to our possessions by placing them in strategic places so people can see them. Nothing wrong with that. How much more, though, is it important that you and I praise, that we praise God, our possession, and put him in a place where all may see. Are you doing that? Are you uplifting the Father, the Son, and the Spirit so much so that people see them and not you because of what he's done for you? What truths back this up? First of all, we've been acquired by God, verses 11 and 12. And that, secondly, that we are we bear his mark of ownership. The spirit in us testifies that this is true and there's still so much more to come. May you and I, as we go out into our week, live in such a way that we praise the God to whom we belong. Father, we thank you so much for all that you've done for us in Christ. You have been so gracious. You have been so loving, merciful, giving to us what we do not deserve. I pray for each one in this room this morning under the sound of my voice. May we all praise your glory, glorify you because of what you've done. You, we belong to you. You've adopted us. You've redeemed us. You've saved us from the, the pit of hell so that we might live to praise you. Father, all the praise and glory goes to our great God. May we reflect that even as we go today. In Jesus' name, amen.